make sure I'm wired up here for sound. I want to invite you to open your Bibles up with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 17. We're going to start and begin to look at verses 22 through 37 this morning. I knew when I was giving uh, Jason my sermon title that uh, with that many verses, I better put part one. And indeed, it is that way this morning. Uh, It's been several weeks since we've been in Luke's gospel, but when we left off in verses 20 and 21, we we touched on a predominant theme of Jesus' teaching, a major theme of the Gospels, and really one of the overarching themes of the entire Bible for that matter, and that is the kingdom of God. And it was all prompted and, and precipitated by a question that the Pharisees had asked about the arrival of the kingdom of God. When is it coming? We saw that in verse 20. Because the Pharisees knew from the Old Testament that God had promised a coming kingdom. If you remember, we said if you were to do a a study of the word king or kingdom, reign or throne, you would find that kingdom theme in no less of 36 of the 39 Old Testament books. And you would find this theme in 21 of the 27 New Testament books, totaling up to about 86% of the entire books of the Bible all talk about a kingdom theme. In the Gospel of Luke alone, we find that there are over 30 instances of the use of the phrase, the kingdom of God. And that's very understandable for us because that's what the New Testament is about. The kingdom's king is the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus told the Pharisees that the kingdom of God was not coming in signs to be observed, but behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, the beginning of the kingdom of God has come in the person, the power, and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Wherever men and women have subjected themselves to the Lordship of Christ, trusted in Him as their God and King, giving Him the honor that is due, acknowledging His royal person, and having the rule and the reign of God wrought by the Spirit of God and in submission to the Son of God in their lives, there you will find the kingdom of God. There would be this, this inward spiritual kingdom first that would, that would grow like a mustard seed or leaven within a lump of, of dough that the king himself would gather to himself all of his subjects through faith in the gospel and not an external political kingdom as the Pharisees had anticipated. We're reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 14, 17. He said, For the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There is an already and not yet aspect of the kingdom of God, and it begins spiritually by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of His people. But now he is going to turn his focus towards his disciples. He's going to zero in on them as he frequently does after talking to the Pharisees and teach them what they and ultimately we need to know about his coming kingdom. So if you are there with me in your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to stand if you're able to do so 
for the reading of God's Word. We're beginning in verse 22 of Luke 17. God's inspired, inerrant Word says this, And He said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. These are somber words. Help us to not consider them lightly, Lord, as we work through this text, but help us to understand it, grasp it, heed it, obey it, and treasure it as coming from you, and therefore is pure, holy, good, and truth. Help us to understand more about You this morning so that we can live and walk in holiness before You, God. We thank You for this day and help us to hear what You would have us to hear through Your Word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our great hope as Christians, is to be with, to enjoy, to delight in the Lord Jesus Christ in His kingdom. He is the jewel and the crown of our hope. He is our fountainhead, and He is the source of all of our joy, all of our satisfaction, and all of our blessings. In faith in Christ, through the hearing of the gospel, is the singular and the primary means by which you and I can gain entrance into that kingdom. 
And the church's mandate and the church's mission is to simply and clearly and authoritatively proclaim that gospel. We are not here to reform the world. We do not have a political mandate. We do not have a social mandate. We do not have an economic mandate. We simply have a gospel mandate. And if the church does not proclaim the good news of the gospel and keep it central to its mission, men and women will not be able to put their faith in Christ. And if men and women do not put their faith in Christ, they will never enter into His kingdom and enjoy Him forever. But today, there are many in the evangelical world who have lost sight of this simple directive. They are experiencing mission drift, as it's called, and it is running rampant. Social justice, economic justice, racial justice, and all sorts of things have now replaced and become the chief and the highest concern of many churches across this nation. Jesus himself, he lived in a time when there were a lot of social disparities, economic disparities, even racial disparities. And Jesus was more than aware that there was a a great need for the poor and the sick whom the Jews even believed that they were under the punishment of God because they were in that position. He knew that widows were being mistreated, and orphans mistreated, and women unvalued. And yet, he never preached a sermon where he charged the disciples to go over and take over the Jewish nation by political means. He never attempted to diffuse Jewish or Roman social tensions or economic disparities. He never put out a call for a flat tax to be made law so that it would be completely fair for everyone. He actually told them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But on the contrary, his teachings and his appeals were to always go to the heart of the matter. And his chief concern was always for the eternal souls of men. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He came not for those who are healthy, but those who are sick. And he simply preached the good news of the gospel and the good news of the kingdom of God because he knew that all that is right, all that is pure, all that is noble, all that is just, will only come about and overflow only when hearts are changed through the transforming power of the gospel. You and I will never ever be able to love our neighbor as ourselves if we are not first enamored and delighted and astounded by the love of God through Jesus Christ. But there are many who are trying to put the proverbial cart before the horse. And others' attempts at cultural change and all attempts at that, correcting injustice, will be like us trying to put a band-aid on the leak of the Hoover Dam unless we deal with the heart. Luke 6.45, Jesus said, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. It's the heart 
that is the wellspring of our lives, as Proverbs 4.23 tells us, and we must watch over it with all diligence. And yet, amidst all the confusion that we have within the church today and the turmoil and the bewilderment we have going on in evangelicalism right now, with trying to redefine its mission, we don't have to wonder or speculate about what the Lord would have us and want us as a church to keep as our priority. Because it's the very thing he taught his disciples. For example, on the day of Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1, when the apostles asked if the kingdom would be restored to Israel, Jesus replied that the time of this event is known only to the Father and that the disciples were to focus on gospel proclamation to the ends of the earth. He said, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Why? Because there is coming a day when Christ will indeed return. We see that in verses 10 and 11 of Acts 1, if we were to follow along. And it said, And as they, that is the disciples, were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. In other words, Jesus was saying, until I return, until I come back visibly, gloriously, bodily, and triumphantly, you are to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so why is that such a big deal to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth until he returns? One simple reason. Eternity is at stake. Beloved, if there is one thing that makes me take in acid every time I stop and step into this pulpit, is because some of you have not considered eternity. And I stand before you, a man pleading with you to consider eternity this morning, every Sunday, every Sunday. Eternity is at stake in your heart. Have you locked it in in following Jesus Christ? Eternity is at stake. Worship is at stake. Everlasting praise and delight and the enjoyment of the all-glorious Christ is at stake. Because when He returns, that day will bring about the redemption of God's people and it will bring about the judgment of the ungodly. The Bible says that every single person in this room will see Jesus Christ face to face one day. And the only question for you is this, whether you will meet Him into His everlasting arms of friendship, having embraced Him by faith as your Savior, or whether you will bow down beneath His foot and you will meet Him as your eternal judge. This is why the church must stay focused on its mission. This is why it's so crucial that we don't want to experience mission drift away from the gospel. All of history is culminating and is fixed on one certain 
point in time, and that is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He's not coming back to play games. He's not coming back to be meek and mild. He's coming to conquer. He's coming to judge. And He's coming to take what is rightfully His. But we don't know when that day will be. And so he wants us to keep enough oil in our lamps. He wants us to be like servants waiting for their master's return. He wants us to be ready for that day. And that's the message that the Lord wants us and his disciples to know. There is coming a day when Jesus will return. We just sang it in a couple of those songs. And it will be unpredictable. It will be unmistakable. It will be unescapable. And for those of you who are not prepared, it will be calamitous. But notice in our text this morning, he first says to his disciples in verse 22, he says, the day will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look here, look here, do not go away and do not run after them. Now, some people try to argue and say that this is referring to Jesus' earthly ministry, but this is a forward-looking statement. This is looking to the future. You will long. And this word long here means that it's a lustful desire, but it can neither mean good or bad in its terminology. But in other words, it says that you will long. This will be your consuming passion. You will yearn. You will have that strong desire. You will pray, thy kingdom come, and you will really mean it. You will want to say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You will have the attitude of those in Revelation 6.10, which says, how long, O Lord, how long? Your eyes, it will be riveted heavenward for the return of your King. Your heart will be in eager anticipation for the return of Christ and the vindication and the glorification of His great name. It won't be so much the release of the freedom from all of your sins. It won't be so much because you want you or your loved ones to be uh, alleviated from your sufferings. Although all of that will be a tremendous blessing in and of themselves but it's that you will long to see Jesus Christ worshipped, honored, glorified. It's like when somebody makes a derogatory comment towards your wife or your children or something, and they they mistreat them or they falsely accuse you or something, and you want to stand up, and you want to protect them, you want to tell that person, you want to say, wait a second here, buddy, just wait one second. You want to protect them and you want to vindicate them from the disrespect they are getting. And your longing for Christ to come will be that He will be vindicated. He will be respected. He will be honored. Your passion is to see His name lifted high. You'll be like David in Psalm 69 when he said, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I take it personally when people offend you, God. You will long. You will desire. And then he uses this phrase here. He says, the Son of Man. It's, it's been said that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. But it's a title that Jesus is fond of using of himself because it emphasizes his humanity. 
the Son of Man. It's one of his favorite designations of himself. He's used it 84 times in the Gospels alone. Now, the Son of Man is a messianic term connected to the coming Messiah to establish his kingdom. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, where Daniel says this. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he said, uh, and he came to the Ancient of Days, who is God. He was presented before him to give him, or to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Do you hear the language of Acts chapter 1 in there? Does that sound familiar? But he goes on. He said, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's an eternal kingdom. And this Son of Man will ultimately be king and he will set up his glorious kingdom. And note in verse 23, again it says, they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. In other words, that guy who says there's 88 reasons that Jesus is returning in 1988, don't follow that guy. The guy who last year on April 23rd, 2017 said that Christ was coming on that day. Don't follow that guy, right? Don't follow these so-called prophecy experts that are all over what is called Christian television. Don't follow those who in their zeal and their nervous excitement will say that Jesus has already come and he's in hiding somewhere. Because Paul in Uh, The church of Thessalonica, he had the same words. He said the same things in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he said this. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. Don't listen to those who claim to have insider information, as if they will have the scoop on Jesus' return. It will not be like his first advent at all. Because when Jesus came the first time, he came in weakness. He came as a tender infant, born of a woman placed in a manger in an obscure little town called Bethlehem. He was unnoticed except for a few shepherds and unhonored except by some magi from the east. And there won't be just a few who get to see his coming. Not when he comes back a second time. And Jesus says, don't follow after the few. Why? Because it's going to be unmistakable. His second coming is going to be so completely different than his first coming. And he illustrates that for us in verse 24 when he says this, For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, you and I will not have to tune in to Fox News and CNN to see if Jesus has arrived. 
we won't have to flip through the New York Times or the U.S. Today, today if any of you read those papers. You won't have to check your Facebook or your Twitter feed to see if Christ has indeed come. It's going to be totally and universally obvious that you will not need anyone to tell you that Jesus has come. His second coming will be like a bolt of lightning that flashes across the sky. It's a spectacle that no one on the face of the earth is going to miss. I remember our first home that we used to live in. We used to have lightning rods on the top of the house, and the copper rod used to follow across the peak, and it would curve down around the side of the house right beside this big picture window that we had in the dining room. And we were sitting there eating dinner one night in the evening, and there was a rainstorm, and all of a sudden a lightning bolt struck those lightning rods. It allowed the, tra- the electricity to travel down the side of the house and into the ground. And I remember sitting there, and I hear this loud crack of lightning like nothing that I'd ever heard before. And it made the inside and the outside of our house just uh, illuminate in this pure, blinding, white light just for a split second. But it just jolted you out of whatever you were thinking about at the moment, and it caused you to just be in this awe of its display, of its power, and its brilliance. And immediately, I got up and said, i got to go check the attic. And one of the other kids got up and said, I think I better go to the bathroom, because it was that powerful, that bright, and that jolting to wake you up. And this is the picture that Jesus is painting for us about his return, like a a 24,000-mile-long lightning bolt. Jesus' return will be awesome in its appearance. It will be brilliant in its brightness. It will be sudden in its arrival. It will be powerful in its display. It will be unmistakable that he has indeed come. No one on the face of the earth, will be sitting there in doubt whether or not Jesus Christ has returned. It will be a cosmic return. From the Middle East to the Southeast, from the North Pole to the South Pole, everywhere in between, no one would miss it. And that's what Jesus' point here is here, that we should be ready for His return. We should be looking heavenward for an expectant return of our Lord. We shouldn't be living in passivity, but we should be living a life of activity that is singularly focused on the task of being obedient and ready for the return of our Master because we do not know when that will be. And so the question this morning is this, are you ready for the coming of Jesus Christ? Are you honestly longing to see Him? Is that your heart's desire? Is that what you're truly living for this morning? Something is on the throne of your heart. And it's either Christ or it's something else. And if Jesus were to show up today, like a bolt of lightning, a flash across the sky, would you be satisfied in how you have been living for Him? If he were to show up today, would he welcome you into his everlasting arms and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or would he say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you. 
Are you longing to be with, to enjoy, to delight in the Lord Jesus Christ? When you think about His coming, does it fill your heart? Does it fill your mind with wonder and awe? Would you have regrets that you've been pursuing everything else in this world but Him? Are you settled in your heart this morning that Christ will embrace you? If not, today is the day of mercy, but it won't always be today. And He bids you to come today. Eternity is at stake before you. He says, come to Me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is coming, certainly, and suddenly, at a time when we least expect it. And we'll have more to say about this next time. We have some somber words before us when we pick up in Luke 17. But are you longing today, looking for the triumphant return of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ? But until then, let's pray. Father, we hear these words and we know that they are truth. And we know that You will come suddenly and surely because Your Word will not fail. Father, we confess to You that we do not live expectantly. We do not long. And sometimes we are so comfortable with this world that we are indifferent to Your coming. Lord, help that not to be within our hearts this morning. Help us not to cling to the things of this world, but help us to cling to Christ. Help us to have eyes that are fixated on You above, ready for You to come and take us home. Father, we need Your help in this. There are so many things in this world that are clamoring for our attention and our time. And our hearts are cold and different and wayward towards You. Lord, give us strength. Give us a hope, and a future to look for Your return. Help us to be ready to see You gloriously and triumphantly vindicated for Your great name's sake. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.